Hey everybody and welcome back. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you uh, coming along wherever you might be. We've got a special episode for you today. Joe Boot, he's the founder, the president of the Ezra Institute. Our regular listeners will know him well. Joe today is joined by Joel and Darnell from the Sixth Sense Report. We ran a bit of a podcast mashup. Joel and Darnell, they came, came down to the Ezra Institute Center and had a, uh, had a conversation on sphere sovereignty. So you're going to hear the, uh, the first part of that conversation this week in this episode. This is an explanation of sphere sovereignty, going through it sort of blow by blow, sphere by sphere, detailing the relation of each of those spheres of the individual, the family, businesses, and the church, uh, the relationship of each of those to each other, to the state, and as well as the biblical role of the state itself as a ministry of justice and the responsibility that it has under God to enforce public justice. Joe talks about the ideology of totalitarianism, where one sphere, uh, usually the sphere of the state, relates to the other spheres in a parts-to-whole fashion and has a tendency to bring that, uh, that coercive element into its relationships. And he gets into some of the background on the, uh, the Reopen Ontario Churches campaign that he was involved with. I hope you enjoy it. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Yo, man, got something special today. Special? Why you say special, Joel? If the audience could see the scenery, they would know. For, for starters, we're, we're on location. And we are on site at the Ezra Institute. Uh, outside it said Ezra Farmlands. I, I kind Farmlands. Of Ezra yeah. Farmstead. Farmstead. F- Farmstead in Grimsby, Ontario with uh, Pastor Dr. J- Joe Boot. Hello, Joe Boot. Welcome. It's good to be with you. Thanks for coming out here all this way. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's, uh, it's, it's our pleasure. Uh, now, for the listeners who don't know you, uh, can you give them a background on who you are? And, and what the Ezra Institute is about? Sure. I'm uh, basically a, a cultural apologist and Christian philosopher. I came to Canada uh, 17 years ago nearly now to work with uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. I was working with the Zacharias Trust in Oxford for a couple of years before coming here in the work of Christian apologetics. And then about uh, 12 years ago, I planted Westminster Chapel in downtown Toronto, and in 2009 established the Ezra Institute. And uh, recently, about three years ago, God was very gracious to us, gave us the resources to acquire our own study center, which is on this farmstead here. And the Ezra Institute is basically a Christian world and life you think tank. So we think, (laughs) we write, uh, we speak, and we do um, Christian worldview and cultural apologetics uh, residential training. So uh, people come to us for programs in in cultural apologetics primarily. And so we have published a journal called uh, Jubilee. We have an active website and a small team here. And we have an itinerary outside of our residential work here as well. It takes us around the world. Wow. And you were also a pastor at Westminster. Yeah, so I was the founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto. And about two and a half years ago, uh, about to, after 10 years, I stepped down as a senior pastor uh, to focus on the institute, but I'm still the founding pastor at large, they call me. Um, and so I still preach once a month at Westminster. That's my home church. Yep. Okay, great. 
Great. Now, we wanted to do this particular show as laying the foundation for future shows that Joel and I plan to do investigating institutional racism and finding where the problems may lay. But before we get into that, we wanted to lay a foundation for Christians on a biblical understanding of institutions and sphere sovereignty, uh, particularly dealing with, we're going to address the individual, the church, the family, the state, and how God wants these institutions to operate within society. That way we can kind of give our listeners a framework for when we actually start getting into more detailed, specific institutions, just like school system, the banking system, the police, and so forth. So we we wanted to kind of give a biblical understanding for that. So can you kind of help us walk through that, starting with the individual? Mm-hmm. Well, let's maybe start with the concept of sphere sovereignty, which um, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with uh, with this basic idea. Uh, they probably are probably not. <laughs> yeah. So we could maybe start there and and talk about what th- uh, uh, that means essentially. So it was probably Groen van Prinsteren, who was a uh, a Dutch thinker shortly after the French Revolution, who um, used the term or at least began to speak and, and talk about these sorts of spheres. Some would argue you could possibly trace it back to an even earlier thinker, but certainly Groen van Prinsteren begins this sort of tradition. And then it was picked up by the more well-known Dutch theologian and thinker and prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, yeah, I'm familiar who with would him. probably be more familiar with. And uh, what uh, Kuyper argued was that this was not some sort of social construct that they were trying to impose, but rather this was a creational idea that that when we look at creation itself, uh, and as we look at creation in conjunction with scripture, we see that God has established different spheres of authority and different spheres within uh, creation itself that are distinct from one another, that are meant to be distinct from one another, recognized as distinct from one another, that are governed by, in a typical way, by their own laws and norms. So that the family, for example, as a sphere of authority, um, so when he talked about sphere sovereignty, he didn't mean that these were spheres that were independent of God, uh, but rather that they were under God. So uh, as you look at these different spheres of life, and you've talked about the individual, the family, society, the state, and so forth, and then different institutions within society, these spheres are governed by their own typical law structures, and that they're not really interchangeable. You can't govern the family like you would govern the state. That would be a terrifying thing. Um, And you don't govern the church as the family is governed. That would be a pretty odd uh, structure in the life of the church. And so he argued, and this tradition argues, that there are these different creational spheres that God has established and that we need to recognize, and that as society begins to subject itself or submit itself to God, it begins to differentiate these different spheres. And that when uh, the danger is, if if we don't recognize them, we don't protect these different spheres, they of course touch, but if we don't want one sphere swallowing all of the others in a parts to whole relationship, if we don't recognize that, then actually the damage to society is um, far reaching. And uh, especially when we think about the state and when the state begins to swallow the other parts of society, the family, the school, the individual, the church, then you have totalitarianism, for example. So that was the basic idea of sphere sovereignty. And you can depict it, I mean, the listener can depict it in their mind's eye with circles that are touching one another. 
but they are not overlapping one another and swallowing each other up in a parts to whole fashion. They are distinct and they remain distinct. Mm -hmm. So what would you say the role of the individual is? Well, it's interesting that you start there because actually when we think about human history and we look at um, uh, political uh, life or what we can call sort of early political life, the individual wasn't the most important um, or wasn't seen as significant. It was the tribe. It was the, uh, the well, first of all, the, the sort of family structure and then the tribal structure. Um, so the idea of the importance of the individual is actually a much later uh, idea that comes up within the Christian tradition. So where the Christian gospel is birthed into the Greco-Roman world, um, you really had uh, very little significance as an individual if you weren't a citizen within the polis. With If you weren't a Roman citizen, your individuality and individual rights were not uniform. Um, even in the life of the family, the um, the, 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 the father within the Roman family had a kind of power of life and death of, and almost an absolute power over its members. He could execute members of the family. Uh, he could dispense with um, members of the family, wives and so on and so forth, almost at will. So the, the, um, the, the individual where you've started there is, is significant. It's not that we, the individual is more important than the family or more important than society. But the individual is significant within society and uh, individual rights and responsibilities being recognized, individual freedoms being recognized is a product of the gradual recognition of different spheres of life and authority. So what is it that protects my rights as an individual today? Uh, what is it that recognizes me as, an, as a significant person within society today is what we would call civil law which is there to protect the freedom of individuals. We talk about our freedom of speech as an individual, our freedom of assembly, our freedom of religion. These kind of individual freedoms are the product of the development of civil law. Um, and uh, that aspect of um, our uh, societal life is, is um, particularly important within the Christian tradition. So the individual... As a Christian, we would say the individual is made in the image of God, um, is, uh, is tasked with serving God from a Christian standpoint to, to rule and subdue. But the individual is set in the context of family and community. And so there are both um, responsibilities and um, uh, we might say in, the, in modern language, rights and responsibilities that come to us as individuals. And it's uh, been the product of the development of a Christian law order, which recognized the importance and significance of a separate area of law to protect the individual, civil law. Would you, um, would you say that the concept of inalienable rights really comes forth from that? Yeah, I would say that... Um, the the idea of 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 basic um, human dignity, uh, of um, equality before the law, of the rule of law, and rights under the law, governed by law, is a product of the Christian tradition. Um, of course, humanists have tried to, and secularists have tried to uh, claim some of this, but. Um, the reality is that without the Christian idea of the importance of the individual 
the the equal dignity of human persons made in the image of God, and the protection that God's law affords people through the rule of law, we would never have seen the emergence of modern Western um, political life. So yes, I would say that if you're looking at the American tradition there and the idea of inalienable uh, rights, um, uh, although the, the Bible doesn't use the language of rights, it talks about justice and law and righteousness and responsibility and covenant, the basic idea of of uh, human dignity and equality before God and before the law is very much out of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament scriptures, yes. And what about like the idea of, would you say that the individual represents the private sector and their ability to create industry? Is that part of the sovereignty? Yeah, so uh, there are public institutions and there are private institutions. And they're governed by different uh, um, uh, law spheres or typical law structures. Um, but yes, the, the the freedom of the individual, economic freedom of the individual, um, uh, the freedom of the individual to 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 marry and uh, own property and conduct business. These are all things protected in 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 civil law. And they are very much part of the, 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 the realm and the role of the individual, that the idea that, that, that any institution, including the state, uh, could in, sort of encroach and, and uh, take away my freedom to marry or my freedom to own property or my uh, freedom to associate or my freedom to exercise, uh, uh, to develop a business and, and exercise an economic freedom. That would be a mark of um, of totalitarianism and, and the collapse of um, a free society. And so, uh, how would you define totalitarianism? So totalitarianism is basically the idea that um, one uh, area, one sphere, if you will, to keep to keep moving with this idea of sphere sovereignty, one sphere can um, relate to the others in parts to whole fashion, which is to say that it can swallow up the other um, spheres of life uh, as though they were a part, just a part of a greater whole. So the most obvious one, uh, most obvious form of totalitarianism is the absolutist notion of the state, where the state starts to regard the family, the church, the individual, uh, the school, uh, the medical field, the econ economic life as, as all lesser parts of a greater whole called the state. When in fact, actually, the only parts, strictly speaking, uh, strictly speaking, of a state are provinces and municipalities. Those are the parts of a state territory. But the idea that you can drop civil society, family, church, and so on um, as parts simply of the state um, is uh, the mark of totalitarianism. So totalitarianism is the idea that that you would treat other parts of society, other parts of human life as merely, uh, other, other spheres of human life, I should say, as merely lesser parts of the state so that they can be controlled, manipulated, governed, ruled in every part by a civil government, by the state. As you were saying that, I don't know, the word that came to mind was like the, the attempt to make all other spheres subordinate. Would you say that's a Good yes. way of thinking yes. about it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there is, of course, the Roman Catholic doctrine of subsidiarity, um, where um, you've sort of got a hierarchy, and uh, there's a certain amount of delegated freedom given to these 
subordinate parts, but they are in the end in a hierarchy. Uh, whereas sphere sovereignty would say, no, there is no hierarchy. It's not that the state is higher or more important or greater than the family or the church or the private business. It's that they're different mm -hmm. and they relate to one another, but they relate to one another in that sense equally, right? There's a, there's a, they, they cannot be exchanged for one another. Um, they cannot be um, switched out for one another. You cannot import the, 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 the law or typical function of one for the other. They have to be treated as independent. That's why we speak about sphere sovereignty and not just spheres. Um, these are sovereign spheres and uh, they, they, they can't be treated in this hierarchical fashion. Okay, so what about the family now? What role does the family play in society? So the family, and, and uh, this is probably important to say, it is a pre-political institution. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, and that means that uh, the family is not something that's defined or created by political life. So uh, the notion that, for example, let's take modern Canadian culture, the idea that the, the state or the courts can come along and redefine the family and say, we're going uh, to redefine that whole institution and thereby politicize it um, is illegitimate from the Christian standpoint of sphere sovereignty. The, the family, being a pre-political institution, um, is the place where um, uh, the role of the family in, in that sense is the place where uh, children are nurtured. Uh, the family has a tremendous role in providing um, guidance. The family is responsible ultimately for education, not the state. It's my responsibility to educate my children, not the state's responsibility. I may delegate that responsibility to certain teachers, but it's still my responsibility. It's still the family's responsibility. Uh, the family provides care, of course, care for the elderly. Right? So I'm responsible, according to scripture, for my parents. Right, that makes sense. Care for the care of my parents. I'm responsible for, the family is responsible for raising children. It's responsible for welfare in many respects. So, mm, how uh, so? so the, well, for example, so the family provides the vast bulk of welfare in society. So I provide for my children. I'm responsible for providing for my children. I, I work so that my children can be provided for. And then of course the family has tremendous power in society because it controls inheritance. So I have the ability then to pass on, of course, in some Western uh, states now, as they become more Marxist, more socialistic, the state is seizing inheritance through inheritance taxes and redistributing it. But the, the family has tremendous power because it, um, it, it, it passes on inheritance. So I can pass on uh, wealth to my children so that they have a start in life as well. So um, education, uh, largely welfare. I mean, think about the, the way that the family funds its children through frequently through university, and then children boomerang. You think you've gotten rid of them, you send them off, and they boomerang back to your house, <laughs> and uh, they're living in your basement, and when they've got particular needs. So if, if, you're, if your children first get married, and they, they want to buy their first car, or they're trying to raise a deposit for their first home, they typically go to their parents and say, can you give us any help? Or pay for the wedding. Or pay for the wedding, right. all of these things. Right. So the family is providing education, it's providing welfare, it's providing support, it's providing guidance. And it's pre-political and it provides a defense mechanism. The family prevents the individual from being naked before the state.
right? The family is one of the reasons why modern uh, uh, society, modern anti-Christian society is trying to break down the family is it wants to treat the individual as a unit, as a unit within simply the state, as a naked unit to be controlled, governed, educated, welfare, everything by the state. The family protects you against that, protects you from that kind of manipulation and control. And uh, that's why the, the family is so important, is so central in, in all of our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about the church? So the church is another uh, sovereign sphere, uh, is an institution that's established by God. I mean, obviously, the three most obvious uh, spheres are family, church, and state, um, as we see them institutionally uh, established in Scripture, and we see them in society. The church... Um, again, is a distinct institution governed by its own typical law structure. So there is a law structure within the church. Often Christians fail to recognize the church is a form of government uh, in our lives, right? We, under the, we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And remember, with sphere sovereignty, Jesus Christ is lord and sovereign king. And all of these other spheres of life are under him. And like the individual, like the family, like the state, the church is under the Lord Jesus Christ and is governed in, in, a, in, in terms of its own law structure. So the church has its own confession and it will have its own organization. So it has deacons or elders or presbyters or bishops or, and archbishops and so on. And it has its own structure of discipline. It can excommunicate its, its members for heresy or for rebellion and unrepentant sin and so on. So, it's a, so the church, its role is to be a form of government and uh, if you look at the way in which the, uh, the church is spoken of in Scripture, we are, in a certain sense, Christ's embassy. We're, we're God's embassy in the earth, and we are, within the church, are prophets, priests, and kings. So you and I, each of us, are, as Christ diaconate, according to um, the New Testament, we have a prophetic, priestly, and kingly role within society. So the church of Jesus Christ, under Christ the head, is um, an institution, of course, the church, we could talk at length about the church as the body of Christ, the church as a local community, the different ways in which the, the church is spoken of. But now I'm talking about, because you're asking me about the institution, the institutional expression of the church. So nobody would say, oh, look, there's Westminster Chapel. Um, if we can blow that building up, we've destroyed the church. No, the body of Christ would still exist. The church of Jesus Christ would still exist. It's not simply the bricks and mortar but it gets expressed institutionally through property and the church is free from tax. So the state cannot tax the church historically in the Western world because you can't tax God's embassy, right? It's, it's, it, the, the, the church collects the tithes from its people and it uses that tithe to expand the work of the kingdom of God in various different spheres of life. So the church is a place of... Um, teaching, so where it's the, 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 the sacraments are administered, uh, and, and, and through the sacraments, a kind of government is, is administered. And then the churches are also, the marks of the church are the administration of the sacraments, um, uh, the preaching of the word of God, and the, and the uh, administration of diaconal care, uh, church discipline, and the administration of diaconal care. Um, and we are then sent out as God's people into the world as Christ diaconate to have a prophetic voice, that is to call um, 
all power and authority to obedience to Christ. That's what the prophets do to, to God's word, obedience to God's word. We have a priestly function, that is to, to minister the, the grace of the gospel to people. And we have a kingly function, which is to bring all spheres of life into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the calling of the Christian. And the church is the institution that uh, equips, trains, disciplines, loves, serves, and sends out the Christian in that task. Task. That's what the institution of the church does. And again, the church institution pr protects you from being na a naked individual before the state. The, 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 the church is, again, a pre-political institution. It cannot be controlled or defined by the state. It cannot be ruled by the state. It's an era, here you have an, era, an area I talked about. You asked about the individual. That's the area of civil law. The church is in an area of what we would call civil private law, and that is another um, law structure within society which protects us from a totalitarian view. So there's public law, there's civil law, and there's civil private law, and that's where the church operates. Well, it's funny you bring that up because uh, in light of what happened with COVID-19 and shutting down the churches <laughs> and your work with the Charter Challenge, can you uh, unpack that quickly for us and let us know the work that you guys were doing? Sure. So during the, um, the, the mass lockdown of uh, uh, families and businesses and, and churches, um, obviously one of the big questions that was coming up for people is, is the lawfulness of that in terms of the Canadian Charter, which guarantees certain fundamental rights and freedoms. Um, unlike the US Constitution, the Canadian Charter wants to throw some caveats in there. And, um, and, and this is where you know, we fell foul, as if you will, of one of these caveats, which is, you know, unless there's sufficient justification. But there is, the courts have been clear that the, the, the justification for the removal of any of those freedoms is an extremely high bar. And so the question became, does the state, does the, does the province in this case, uh, does it really meet the standard of justification for shutting down the life of the church? And where... Um, Myself and another pastor called Aaron Rock particularly were, became very concerned about this and, and drafted a, a one letter, and, and then we, uh, which in the end some 450 churches signed. And then we drafted a second letter, which just the two of us signed for means of expediency. Uh, we also uh, were talking and engaged with, at that point, a lawyer from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms because we were concerned that um, the... Well, for the first problem was the legality of the lockdown altogether. I mean, there's the Bible certainly recognizes the importance of quarantining the sick and those with whom they have immediate contact. We see that in Levitical law. But the mass lockdown of healthy populations so that they can't work, they can't worship. Work and worship are two things, both things that are pre-political. We're not granted permission to work by the state. We're not given permission to worship by the state. Those are God-given. So the first question was, is the lockdown, the mass lockdown of healthy populations lawful? Um, the second question then became when we, when we then um, started to engage government was, when Home Depot's open, um, when people are protesting in the streets, when um, businesses are being opened up, but the church isn't being allowed to open up uh, in, to any degree, I mean, like five people in a, in a church building, um, there's, a, there's a problem there in terms of, and you're absolutely right, um, of sphere sovereignty. Mm -hmm. How can the, 
the state, which is the area of public law, suspend civil law um, in the area of personal freedoms, and then effectively suspend civil private law, the, the, the life of the family, the life of independent business, and then the life of the church. And that was, of course, our concern as pastors, as leaders, is do we have a violation of sphere sovereignty here where the state says, we are responsible for health and human well-being, and human well-being is reduced to non-exposure to a virus. And our argument was, no, human health and well-being involves the cultural task of being able to work and worship. And when you deny people these things um, en masse, uh, indefinitely, by this kind of a lockdown, um, have you not actually violated the sphere sovereignty of the, the family and of the church? Now, of course, you can't make that argument to bureaucrats in provincial government. They don't understand sphere sovereignty for the most part, but they do understand, you know, separation of powers. They understand the importance of the charter and basic rights and freedoms. Uh, I did explain to these bureaucrats the, um, the, 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 the first free institution in the Western history was the Christian church and that freedom was birthed because of the independence of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, and that um, freedom of worship, freedom of assembly, that these things are, are, are critically important. And I actually said, if the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. And so uh, there was an infringement there on the, when the church is singled out for being shut down, when business and other areas are being opened up. There you have uh, a, a, a very clear problem with the charter and you have a manifest uh, violation of sphere sovereignty. Yeah, no, that, that's very helpful. Uh, Joel, did you have any questions about uh, moving on to government? Um, I, I, I wanted to, to touch on the charter thing because I heard kind of it through the grapevine that uh, I don't know if this, you know, in terms of the what they granted <laughs> the church with regards to the thirty percent sort of uh, Trudeau attending the, the the rallies and being sort of in the crowd uh, was somewhat of a catalyst um, for the decision. As I mean, it was that time frame as well as um, somewhat unexpected for a lot of churches. I think. Yeah, so, I mean, to be clear, there, there were quite a lot of churches who were either ambivalent or even opposed to what we were doing. And um, we faced quite a lot of opposition from, yeah, from, uh, from, from, from Christian leaders in the background, um, you know, people writing articles and blogging on the subject and so on. Um, and um, some even, you know, regarding us as, um, you know, irresponsible or whatever. And, and the, the view was, you know, we just do whatever the state says. And when the state says we can worship, then we'll worship. Um, but uh, not until not until that time. Um, and so the um, it, it, it certainly helped us that when we were, you know, engaging with government that we got first so many churches behind us. And then it certainly then helped further that, um we were able to point to businesses that were opening. And then when protests started happening, it only further um, reinforced our, our case. But really, it was the fact that with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, we were implicitly threatening, in fact, explicitly threatening a charter challenge if the churches were not reopened. So I'd have said that the, the weight of the signatories to the letter led to the um, uh, opportunity for conversations with the 
office of the chief medical officer and some of the bureaucrats, uh, which is where the power was very much lying because there were many of the MPPs were actually on our side. They they believed that um, the churches needed to be opened up, allowed to open, but there was resistance from you know public health officials, and so when the charter threat was there, that's when we began to see the uh, the opening up. Now, you know. Um, you mentioned the, the the role of government and of the state. And of course, the state government, uh, civil government, I should say, does have an important role. Um, we're not, we shouldn't be anarchists. And the Christian has never been somebody who is, a, um, or should never be someone who is opposed to the legitimate role of um, civil government uh, and, and a, a legitimate role for the state. What's the nature of the state? Well, the, the peculiar character of the state is, is um, a public law and the harmonizing of public legal interests. And what God gives to the state uh, in scripture is sword power, a, 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 a monopoly on the means of force. So the church doesn't execute people. <laughs> the family doesn't execute people. The state is given this coercive power. It's the one institution that's, been, that's given sword power uh, to th with that kind of coercive legal public law force. And that uh, has a legitimate role in um, restraining evil, uh, Scripture says, um, and um, that th those who are righteous have nothing to fear from a just order, from a just state. Um, and, and that, of course, is the big question, <laughs> right? When is the state acting justly and in terms of what, uh, what criteria? So the, the state has an important role, and that's why, you know, the police and courts and judges and um, civil government officials are important. Uh, as long as the state stays within its sphere of, of competency and authority, which is the sphere of public law and order. But when it starts to try and become your parent or your pastor, and you listen to Justin Trudeau and you think, does the man think he's the pastor of the nation? Um, does he think he's the parent of the nation? Um, when the state tries to step into that kind of a role, then it's stepped outside of, of its sphere of authority. And the reason it's so dangerous for the state to move outside of that is because it carries sword power, this power of coercion. If you bring the, the state's jurisdiction over into the jurisdiction of the life of the family, then you get the redefinition of marriage. You get the, uh, the, the your children being seized if you don't give them um, therapy and hormone blockers um, for, gen for gender confusion or gender dysphoria. If you bring the state into the heart of the, the control of health and medicine and well human well-being, you get mass lockdowns of the healthy. You get state-funded abortion. You get state-funded and promoted euthanasia. Um, if you bring it into the heart of the economy to control and rule the economy, you get a managed or planned economy. You get socialism, right? You get uh, state interventionism. You get the manipulation of the markets. You get the collapse of the, the free market. So that's why we have to be so careful where we bring uh, the, the, the jurisdiction of the state if it moves outside of its sphere of authority and competency. So one of the, the you know, thoughts that that I've always sort of had with respect to, um, you know, the use, the use of force or the use of coercion um, has, you know, at least for me seems in a, in a biblical sense, you know, restitution or, or, you know, rectifying injustices. Um, and, you know, I guess 
to along the lines of what you're saying, it's like, you know, how much we, we I would say we see a lot of government stepping outside of, you know, those things and moving into morality enforcement or, or different things. And so, you know, from a, a biblical perspective, um, can you give us sort of, you know, what are the rails that we should as Christians expect government to be in line with? Um, and and I, I want to maybe there's a secondary question to that with respect to, um, you know, cr- how much do you find the spheres of sovereignty view versus subsidiarity view within sort of Christian, you know, uh, paradigms? So from a from a scriptural standpoint, uh, the the basic idea of justice which is the the state is a ministry of justice. Um, And the basic idea there is tribution. Sometimes that takes the form of retribution, so criminal justice. Um, And uh, at other times, um, it may be that the the, the state has an obligation to promote certain other things, right? Um, I mean, if if you're opposed to murder, you're promoting life. So tribution is the basic idea, um, to tributive, to, to, to uh, give to people according to their due. And um, uh, obviously that has, a, has a, uh, a criminal aspect to it in terms of retribution. Uh, I believe that from a scriptural standpoint, we have to take the standing law of God's commandments, the, the Ten Commandments, as the, as the basic foundation of law. And that was the basic foundation of law in the Western legal tradition. Um, beginning with Alfred the Great, actually, uh, in England, the English common law, as we, sp- as we think about Canada, began with the Ten Commandments and then portions from um, the case laws of Moses and the Book of Acts and so on and so forth. So the, the lines within which the state is to play is to be a ministry of justice. Um, and if it starts to step out of that role um, to uh, so we can see, for example, in the in the in the in the scriptures that um, you, the state does need a small tax. It was like a head tax or a poll tax because there needs to be to have a ministry of justice. You need obviously police, you need courts, you need governors, you need government, and that costs money. So you have a, a small, uh, and I emphasize the word small, small tax um, that is legitimate. And um, beyond that, you might have in a, in, a, in, in, a, in a modern and not agrarian society, you might have certain minimal services like a fire service. Uh, um, and maybe you've got, you have to have certain public works because if your roads are crossing territories or trains are crossing territories or airports need to be built, you need certain structures uh, in which a harmony of legal interests can be reached so that there may be certain um, limited public works that are necessary. Beyond that, um, uh, and, and, and it's, it's almost radical to say so, um, what, there, is, there is no justification for the, the or no, certainly no biblical prescription or justification for the state taking over education or medicine uh, or moving into the, the the management of the economy, or controlling the church um, and the and 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 the ruling of the church, and so on and so forth. And I think that's what is disturbing for thoughtful Christians as they look at the direction of modern Western society. I mean, when you think about politicians, you think about Congress in the United States or the Senate, or you think about parliaments in England. You had the Commons and the Lords. These weren't in the past. These were not full time jobs. Uh, you know, Congress sat for a few weeks. 
Parliaments came together to consider issues of major importance. Now you have a massive professional, political and bureaucratic class so that one of the largest employers, um, if not the largest employer in Western nations today, is the state. So the the rails, as you say, that the, the state, from a, I believe, from a Christian standpoint, should be playing on is to is to be a a, a ministry of justice that is concerned with the harmony of legal interests, public public law over a particular territory, not the running of people's lives in this kind of nanny state conception that we have today, and the idea that it's the state's job to not only provide rule of law, um, and uh, 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 but to, to establish an equal opportunity for everybody in every area of life, and then an equal outcome in every area of life for people. I mean, even this language of e- the state's job is to provide an equal opportunity. Does that mean the state has to provide everyone with an equal opportunity to marry? I mean, doesn't your potential for marrying require that you, um, you know, uh, isn't there a disparity there? I mean, here we've got a handsome young man who's gainfully employed, who was able to marry. Mm-hmm. But what? They're talking about me, guys. <laughs> but but uh, but 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 what if um, you are not gainfully employed, and um, maybe you are struggling in the looks department? And bathe once um, a month. <laughs> uh, maybe you wash once every six months. Um, that is going to affect your marriage. Your marriageability, your your potential to finding a spouse. I mean, if you don't look after your appearance, you don't have a job. Is it the state's job to provide you with an equal opportunity to marry? Um, so, and then what we've come to now is that the state is meant to provide us with equal outcomes in all of our opportunities. Whereas, really, the state's role in scripture is that there is one law, right? There is that where is equality before the law. There is the rule of law. That's what we see in ancient Israel. And that's the tradition that comes down to us in the Western legal tradition. Well, you know, so currently in this present climate that we're in, the term institution uh, is a buzzword. And it's it's a loaded term. Uh, it's institutional racism, systemic racism. And so I'm going to I'm going to give two definitions according to um, proponents of systemic racism. So there's this woman named uh, Trisha Rose, and she has this how structural racism works. And her work is what we're seeing a lot in the viral videos on systemic racism, basically showing um, uh, 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 a system where black people are stuck in it. And so she defines structural racism as uh, the normalization and legitimization of an array of dynamics, historical cultural, institutional, and interpersonal that routinely advantage whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. Okay, so that's one definition. And for the people who are listening at home, um, you know, push, pause, follow, write it down, um, and think about and, and think about and think about what I just said. And now the other one is um, by Robin D'Angelo, and she's another proponent of uh, systemic racism. And she defines it as all systems of oppression are highly adaptive. They can adapt to challenges and incorporate them. They can allow for exceptions. So this is the definition um, we've been given. Um, so we're going to chop that up. 
But um, what do you what do you what do you think, Joe? What do you think? Well, I think it's probably first important to note that um, that that none of these ideas just appear out of nowhere. Okay, they have a they have a they have a long uh, intellectual history, um, and th this essential idea was perhaps um, first articulated, or at least articulated in its modern form, by the first truly uh, European um, public intellectual, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was the one of the philosophers who certainly um, influenced greatly the French Revolution and all major revolutions since with his thinking. And basically his idea was that human beings are born free, but that society, and in particular Christian civilization, because he was in France and he was in the grip of Christian civilization or, or at least a Christianized civilization, uh, broadly speaking, he saw and, uh, and believed that the problems of um, the, the, all the problems in the world were down to the structures, the institutions, the cultural norms of civil society. And the target of his criticism ultimately was um, uh, these basically these um, structures or these norms that are creational, uh, like the family like the church, um, like uh, the way in which um, um, markets and money actually operates. So he believed that um, uh, without getting into the details of all of his uh, political philosophy and the idea of the general will and how you must delegate your freedom to the state and the state will represent the general will and will then you know, make you free and you'll be coerced to be free if you oppose it. it was, he had a totalitarian doctrine of of the state. But his basic idea, his revolutionary idea, which has been copied ever since, is that the problem in society is institutions. The problem is civil society. And that, um, the, that we must go around identifying problems um, and, uh, and we will equate those problems causally to various institutions and structures. So it's not simply that um, uh, the family or, or the church or um, uh, economics convey a disparity in society or a difference. Uh, it's that they are the cause of it. Because what Trudeau, um, Trudeau, he, he did as well. He does as well. <laughs> what Rousseau really believed was in this radical egality and fraternity, right? A radical egalitarianism of that everything must be reduced to uh, a bland equality, um, a, a kind of sameness. And so we're seeing that right now being pushed in various movements, radical feminism, um, queer theory, uh, race theory, is that uh, the that society has, has created these disparities and we must remove every hierarchy, every structure, destroy hierarchies and structures in order to realize a utopia, a utopia without police, without courts, without uh, any disparity where there's an absolute egality uh, equality and uh, fraternity um, between between people. So that's the in 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 broad terms. That is what um, the, the 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 fundamental idea is. That's the intellectual history of the idea that institutions um, are responsible for the ills within human society. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for cultural reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. 
If you did, it would mean a lot to us if you took a moment to subscribe, like, and share the podcast on social media and on your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.